talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board. Kanye West is changing his name to just Yay. So I'm changing my name to just K. Here's Scott Thompson. Oh, man. (laughs) Who's running this joint? Uh, good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will on the board. Ted and Diana in the newsroom. Jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open. 905-645-3221. Star 9900 on your cell. Uh, Diana picking the uh, top hour tune today because... She loves the sound of an ongoing cowbell. Absolutely. <laughs> I, you know, and, and I promise for four o'clock I will have a cowbell here. Oh, nice. I, I have one. I have one at the bar. I, I just at can't get out of my, yes, I can't get out of my tent right now to get at it. Oh, okay. Because of course I'm, I'm, I'm in my little studio here That's at right. home. But, That's right. uh, I, and I, it, it takes me like an hour to get in and out and rebuild myself. Sort of like, a when you're a kid building the tents out like of pillows and blankets. Fort, a living yes, room. Yes. That's fort. exactly what it's like. Yes. Yes. So anyway, so as soon as, as Will said, don't fear the reaper, I'm thinking, okay, but I totally forgot about the cowbell. And do you remember, or yeah, I'm sure you must be, uh, are, are you old enough? Are you not old enough to remember Ooh. Will Farrell doing the cowbell? Bell sketch of course. in Saturday Night Live. Of when course. He, in the 70s, there was always one guy. That's all he did was hit the cowbell. Mm-hmm. It was perfect. So is this uh, this is a Halloween thing for you? I think so. And it kind of reminds you of Halloween. It's always all my Halloween yeah. playlist rounds, you know, so... And do you decorate the house, get everything all uh, decked out for uh, for Halloween? I do, yeah. Me and my husband both decorate. It's been a little chilly and rainy, so we're going to do that soon. Yeah, that's on my sched for this weekend. Uh, for us, the Halloween has gotten bigger than the Christmas decorations now. Ooh, it's very getting nice. right out of hand. Yeah, in my fourteen-year-old, uh, obviously not going out anymore, so he's ramped it up another notch, uh, complete with sound effects and yelling at kids through loudspeakers and stuff. It's uh, <laughs> it's something to see. All right, great choice, Diana, and I promise I will get the cowbell coming around by uh, about 4 o'clock this afternoon, although that ca- could get ugly by about 6 o'clock when you think about it. Should we really introduce I say let's go cowbell? for it. Yes, let's do it. Let's go get the cowbell. All right. Poll question of the day is yours. You can access it through our social media on our Twitter page. Do you support the city's moves to clear tent encampments? And about right now, 65% are you, 65% of you are saying to yes, in fact, uh, clear them. Yesterday, the four day work week, 65% of you in, uh, voted in favor of that. So feel free, jump on our Twitter page and exercise your right and, uh, vote in our very unofficial poll. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to engage. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, we saw some, uh, spectacular footage about this time yesterday of a, a jet airliner that was a smaller plane that was en route for Boston taking off out of Houston, Texas, and uh, basically just went right off the end of the runway and and kept going into a field. Uh, by the time uh, the, we, we saw the plane in the footage, it was it was completely engulfed in flames. And my goodness, the first reaction is the worst. Yet all 21 passengers got out without serious injury, which is always a miracle, even though this plane just went off the the end of the runway and not necessarily falling out of the air it's still a a crash that uh, you have merely seconds to react uh, in order to avoid that serious injury let's bring in keith mackey owner of mackey international and aviation he is an aviation expert and with us now keith thanks for the time hope you're well well hi scott yes everything's fine i hope you are Yes, thanks so much. Uh, your thoughts and update on what has happened here. Do we have any sort of report as to what happened and why this plane went off the end of the runway in Houston? Well, it's just a good thing there was nothing else off the end of the runway but an open field. Hmm. We really don't know what happened yet. Apparently, they tried to, as we say, reject to take off. Some event must have taken place. And the way things work with an airplane this size, this is an airliner, actually. It's a DC-9 or an MD-87 that was in corporate uh, use. And the way that it works is when we take off out of a smaller airport, 
and this was Houston Executive Airport. The runway was 6,600 feet long, which is adequate for an airplane that size as long as it isn't uh, loaded to its max weight. But what we do is we make calculations, and we consider the runway length, the temperature, the wind direction, and all that, and we come up with something called a decision speed. And we know if we accelerate to that speed and we have an engine failure, that we'll have enough runway to safely stop on the runway. Hmm. If we try to take off before that speed, we might not have the ability to climb on one engine. But if we wait for that speed, we're guaranteed both. But apparently, they must have rejected the takeoff after that speed for reasons that we'll have yet to discover and that would cause the airplane to go off the end of the runway. And it looks like they went off about 1,000 feet. And how uh, obviously uh, the, the passengers all got out safely. By the time we saw footage, the, flame, the plane was completely uh, engulfed. Any idea of how much time they would have had after that plane came to arrest to get out? Well, the question is how soon after the airplane stopped did the fire start? Yeah. And likely... Uh, the airplane wasn't, uh, because the field was opened, wasn't damaged terribly, but no doubt uh, uh, with everything being hot and uh, fuel dripping around that eventually it caught fire, clearly everyone was able to get out, probably in a very orderly fashion. I think the only injury was one gentleman complained of a back injury, but everyone else was fine. So the uh, the evacuation took place just as it should have, apparently. Any advice, Keith, for those that may find themselves in this sort of unbelievable situation, this traumatic situation? Because obviously those seconds counted. Uh, what do you do, and, and, and how do you keep your wits about you when this sort of thing happens? Well, if you're a passenger, I can give you one excellent piece of advice. Hmm. If you ever have to evacuate an airplane, don't try to take anything with you. Don't try to get your hand carrier, your luggage or anything. Just get off the airplane. And uh, it's when people start trying to take things with them that the situation goes downhill in a hurry, and that's when people don't get out. Wow. Uh, will they find out exactly what happened to this plane in Houston? I'm sure they will. I'm sure they, because of the size of the airplane that had a cockpit voice recorder, and a flight data recorder, and it probably won't take very long because they'll be able to interview the crew to find out exactly what took place. What about the age of the plane, Keith? I think it was over 30 years old. Does that matter? How significant is that? Well, like anything else, it was a 1987 uh, manufactured airplane, and uh, nothing wrong with that. Uh, It's perfectly safe as long as it's properly maintained. I mean, we have airliners flying around that are older than that. We have things such as the DC-3 that are still flying, and they were made in the 1930s, and many of them are still airworthy. So it's more a question of how well the airplane is maintained rather than the age of it. Uh, I understand this was a private uh, corporate jet. Is there different standards for them than there is commercial aviation of us just getting on a passenger plane and flying to another destination? Yes, it is. The uh, commercial passenger airplanes in the United States have to be certified for an airline operation, which is called FAA Part 121, and they have a very high set of standards. As a corporate airplane, they don't have to meet all these standards. So we really don't know if they voluntarily met them or if they just followed the normal corporate standards. Keith Mackey with us, owner of Mackey International and Aviation, uh, talking about that uh, plane off the end of the runway in Houston, Texas. Great news, all 21 passengers getting out without serious injury. Keith, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. You too. We've talked about the supply chain crisis uh, quite a bit on this show lately, and especially lately, although it has been in and out of the news pretty much for the whole uh, global pandemic, but certainly hearing more of it on the latter part 
of uh, the pandemic. Remember back at the beginning, it was hand sanitizer and toilet paper for some reason. And, and then eventually, once the reality set in and, and we, we, we saw what we had, then things like sporting equipment and home entertainment and such started flying off shelves. And now we're in a situation where they're talking about over the holiday season, a shortage of goods, things like cars as well, appliances. We've certainly heard about uh, building supplies and such. Uh, we were only down production-wise for a few months, couple of months maybe. Why this much of a uh, of a a strain on the supply chain? Let's bring in Ofer Barron, distinguished professor of operations management, academic uh, academic director, MNA program at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, and with us now. Ofer, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you very much, school. Thank you for having me. So why are we experiencing this now, Ofer? Because, again, many thought that we would be through this portion of uh, any issues at, at this point and then thought that it was going to be the Roaring Twenties coming out the other end of this. How do you explain exactly what is happening here? So it's a combination of a few things, but uh, basically uh, we have to remember that uh, supply chains are uh, taking long to be complete, completed, completed. So if you buy a refrigerator today, its raw material started kind of um, build up into this refrigerator probably a year or two ago. So if I shut a plant two mo- for two months uh, a year ago, now suddenly a year later, you don't have the material. Hmm. And uh, that's something that always happens uh, with shortages as well, because um, people plan capacity according to demand. You have a shortage, it takes some time and, until you can kind of build up uh, two months. That's, you know, uh, a lot of production capacity that has been lost all around the world. Now, so this, it, it, is just, it has just taken this long for this to get through the chain? Yes. And one of the uh, confounding factors is that this happened all around the world hmm. for everything. So now you also put a lot of toll on your logistics services. So if you, one of the things that we hear about more and more, kind of the issues with um, and the shipping industry, obviously with containers and the price of shipping a container, uh, you know, is more than triple, probably closer to five times what it used to be uh, before COVID. And this, this is re- a reflection of a higher demand and, and lower and, uh, and uh, longer lead times, right? So we certainly understand how our supply chain works now with technology. Uh, the days of big warehouses, uh, uh, the warehousing has changed and how it's done now te- with, with technology and such. Products come in, then products go right back out, and then they're replenished. It's not like the old days when there were stockpiles of uh, uh, warehouses filled with, with merchandise. It's an ongoing moving thing with a lot of different tentacles. Is this going to change the way we distribute products? Is this going to change the supply chain in any way? Will we learn from this? Uh, I'm pretty sure it is. So first and foremost, we understand more strongly now than ever the importance of what we call the agile supply chain. You want to have a robust uh, uh, supply chain that can respond to uh, shocks. Also, I think one of the benefits of new technology and uh, more data available is that we can plan our supply chains a little bit uh, more effectively. So I'm I'm thinking especially of if you have a um, fleet of uh, ships that are going around the world and uh, transform uh, containers uh, with uh, more advanced tools, you can probably optimize the route of these ships a little bit better and in a robust fashion. So once, you know, the LA port is uh, having a longer uh, wait time than uh, predicted, it doesn't cause um, a huge disruption to your entire network of ships. Will will this happen again? I mean, obviously, we have a global pandemic, and many have compared to this to a world war in, in the way that it affects, as you said, virtually everybody in every every corner of the earth and every industry and such. Will we learn enough from this so if something like this happens again, we won't be in these scenarios? And again, the toilet paper issue was interesting because uh, I remember manufacturers saying there's tons of toilet paper. It's just the way the supply system and the chain is set up. If you go in and buy it all at once, it, as you said, it can't react to it. So will do you think we will see this again? Do you think we'll see the world in this position again once we identify how we correct this? 
Yeah, I, I think I'm old enough to hopefully not see it again. Yeah. But uh, in principle, uh, one of the issues with uh, supply chain and why it is, uh, as you described, moved from uh, holding lots of stocks to trying to be more of a process that stock is moving all the time, is that holding stock is very expensive. Mm. I don't like to pay a lot of money at the store when I buy my stuff. I prefer um, cheaper stuff typically. And this implies that people are designing the supply chain to be cost-effective. And a cost-effective supply chain is not as agile as it may need to be in a face of a pandemic or a natural disaster or a global war or something like that. So I'm afraid that because the continuous pressure of providing cheaper items uh, when, when we are not in a, in a crisis time, um, we may find ourselves yet again with people not designing their supply chain as effectively to deal with uh, disruptions like we've seen now. Hopefully it will be done better than in, during COVID. We remember at the beginning of the pandemic and the search for PPE for uh, protective uh, equipment for uh, medical staff and frontline workers and such. And obviously there were strains on the supply chain to get those to, to North America, to Canada and such. We're now hearing that there's warehouses filled with this stuff and it is disrupting the supply chain by taking up warehouse space. Is there validity to that? Uh, I don't know the details, but it certainly makes sense to me. So uh, going back to, you know, if you think about how a large uh, clock moves, uh, it goes up and then it goes down and then it goes up in the other side. And mm -hmm. what happened with PPE, there was such a shortage that everybody said, oh, let me bring in, let me bring another container, let me bring another container. And suddenly, oh, we're full of containers now, but the demand obviously is straightened up and there's enough capacity to kind of satisfy it on an ongoing basis. So you're being stuck with the, uh, left lots of inventory. Oh, for Baron with us, Distinguished Professor of Operations Management, Academic Director, MMA Program at the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, talking about the supply chain crisis, uh, which we're all starting to experience. Oh, for thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you very much, Scott. Have a good day. All right. You may have uh, seen this yesterday in the news, uh, a terrible story out of Philadelphia where a sexual assault took place on a crowded subway train. Uh, many witnessed the rape, uh, none of whom intervene, uh, intervened over the course of 40 minutes. Some reportedly filmed the event, uh, recorded the event, what possibly could be going through people's minds that would allow them to do that, but not call for help let's bring in steve jordan's professor of psychology university of toronto and is with us now steve thanks for the time hope you're well great to be with you again scott what are your thoughts steve when you hear of a story like this what's your reaction yeah i mean it's it's not a new story so the original sort of story like this was a story of a, a woman named kitty genovese in, in new york right after people really started going to cities and there was this fear that cities were going to become this inhuman place. And, and Kitty Genovese was attacked over a period of over a half hour, 45 minutes, and got away from her assailant who then caught her again. And it was right outside apartment buildings where a lot of people could, could hear and mm. nobody did anything. Uh, and so that started a lot of research on psychology and what we now call the bystander interference effect. And it's a pretty well-known phenomenon uh, that's kind of creepy. It's kind of like the more people that are available to help, the less likely anybody is to actually do so. That is bizarre. Uh, in other words, there's comfort in crowds. If the other person's not saving someone, then I don't need to. Whereas if I'm by myself, there's only one there to help but me. That's right. So, so we call it um, diffusion of responsibility. So when it's just you and that person needs help, right, it's on you. And there's, and mm. there's no doubt about that. As soon as we start adding other people, it's not so much a comfort of the crowd um, that we believe. It's it's more of this feeling like maybe somebody else is better pre better prepared to do something. So you know, obviously interfering in that, you're you're likely to have some sort of violence ensue. I assume if somebody's raping somebody, then they're then they're probably just as likely to you know hit you or whatever. And so you might be thinking thoughts like oh, there's somebody else with martial arts training, or there's somebody else who's you know, much better at dealing with that situation than I. And for every additional person, it's kind of like the responsibility for you to do something becomes diminished. And, and the longer people just sort of stand and don't do anything, the more likely it will be that they will continue to not do anything. I, I have to say, though, this event was, like even the Kitty Genovese one, we're talking about people in apartment buildings 
who are choosing not to, you know, come out of the apartment building and go after somebody who has a knife and is chasing someone. This one, you know, in, in a subway car where you're that close, and that other facet you talked about, about taking out the cameras, you know, this mm-hmm. is a new phenomenon, but that really kind of notches it up another level where, like, why would why would they do that? Do they think they're capturing evidence or, yeah. And and that's exactly, Steve, where I have an issue with this, because I can totally understand people who do not want to get involved, do not want to get hurt, uh, do not want to increase the level of violence that's going on, uh, fearful for their own safety, completely makes sense. But would that person not then think, well, what else can I do? Can I hit the emergency button on the train? Can I dial? I mean, if you can hold your phone up, Steve, you can certainly dial 911. That's what's frightening on the, about this. It, it, it truly is. There, there are a, a lot of experiments on this um, where they've put people in situations and they have shown you know, that basic finding that the more other individuals there are, often in those cases they have what they call confederates. So they have people who are pretending to be just like you, a participant in the experiment, but they're really in on it. And so they're not going to do anything. And we just show by every one of those we add, then that real person becomes less and less likely. But it, it is... You know, when it's so easy to get some help, to, to reach out for one of those buttons or, you know, to stop the train or, or whatever, it is really mind-boggling how powerful this effect can be uh, and how sort of immobilizing it can be on people to actually do anything. It's, it's one of those things I don't think most of us will believe unless we ourselves were in that situation and we ourselves didn't act. Um, you know, it just seems to boggle the mind uh, again the filming part wow um you know that that just seems to be a phenomenon of the modern world where it's like all these people are walking around with their phone and anytime something exceptional happens there seems to be this instinct now to to film it and maybe that will i don't know bring you some sort of attention or maybe that video will be useful in some way I, i'm not really sure that is a that's a phenomenon we need to study more now and it also blows the whole safety thing out the out the window, Steve, because if you're standing there watching someone commit any sort of crime and you're holding up a phone, you are a threat to that criminal. You might as well be holding a weapon because you've got the evidence in your hand. So even that seems even more bizarre because, again, they might as well have been hand, you know holding a gun but just didn't say stop. Yeah. And, or even and, and stop, it, I'm filming you, I'm videoing you, I've got this all, stop. Yeah, I, I mean, it is, you know, I can give you the research, I can tell you the literature, and at the same yeah. time, I'm, I'm of the same mindset of you, especially, you know, someone being sexually assaulted. And another big thing we know about humanity that encourages what we call pro-social behavior, helping one another, is, is what we call empathy, basic empathy, that the, we have this tendency as humans to share the emotional states of people we see. If we see someone who's sad or whatever, we tend to feel a little bit of that sadness, and that pushes us to want to help. Um, I'm sure the person being attacked was, you know, in fear and and screaming and, and all that kind of stuff. So everybody else on that train should be feeling some version of what she's feeling. And, and the fact that they're still, you know, immobilized while they're sharing some of this horror um, is... It's, it's just really hard to wrap your head around, even when you see the data. It just, it, when, every time one of these things happens, it's like, really, is the phenomenon that powerful? Uh, but it does seem to be. What about afterwards and the guilt one may feel for not doing more? Yeah, I mean, in, in a case like this, I think, you know, that could certainly um, play a big role. And, and that is, you know, to some extent, we think that's what guilt is about, um, a replaying in the mind of some event where perhaps the behavioral choice we made was not the best one. And as we replay it and consider what our options could have been and how they would have played out, we sometimes find ourselves, you know, that this was a really bad option. So in a way, guilt is a process that's supposed to be a correction mechanism that kind of helps us next time to do the right thing. Um, but it doesn't feel very good. And, and to some extent, in a case like this, it shouldn't feel very good. You know, those people really should be taking a solid look at themselves. Uh, there are a number of other, I'll just mention one other thing. There's one other phenomenon that's like this that's around how much we're likely to obey authority. It's, it's research by people, uh, somebody named Milgram. And it actually shows that if you have an authority figure just asking you to keep giving somebody a higher and higher electrical shock, that up to two-thirds of people will, will deliver a shock that they think mm. might have killed somebody. 
um, but they continue. And it's, it's those sorts of uh, research findings really make us look at ourselves in a different way and say, wow, you know, how much control do we really have over our own behavior and, and doing the right thing? Uh, and I think it's sobering and, and good reflective thought. Steve Jordan's with us, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, talking about the disturbing story out of Philadelphia where a sexual assault took place on a crowded train and no one did anything. Steve, thanks for the time. As always, much appreciated. Be well. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. In a nutshell, the working from home model for the long term isn't beneficial for companies. That from the CEO of CIBC, who spoke recently at a conference. Victor Dodig says most company work still needs to be done in a collaborative manner and includes some level of interaction between employees. But that's difficult to achieve right now, even through video calls. And without that face-to-face contact, he says company culture is also taking a hit. Something else to consider, the division which could develop between frontline employees who have continued to go to work right through this pandemic and those employees who've been permitted to work from home over the last 18-19 months. He says that resentment could build even more so with the offering of a hybrid work model to some but not all employees. Dodig says you just can't build a company from home. Tina Trajani, Global News. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Ted, uh, Ted Michaels, Diana Weeks, and Will Erskine uh, around the big round table as we normally do at this time after the 4.30 news. Good afternoon to you all. Great to have you here around the big round table. I'm going to start with what we heard Tina Trajani uh, talking about. It has been uh, 83 weeks. Uh, Lord knows how many months, 18, 19 months. It's all a blur. Um, in regard to, and, and we should explain what's happening, uh, with the situation at CHML. CHML is obviously a news, uh, centric operation and the news per, uh, room is essential. It's the heart of the radio station. So the news people have been there. The rest of us have been working from home. Uh, what do you guys, how do you guys feel moving forward on this? I mean, everybody keeps asking when we're going to change things and nobody really knows. I guess we're guessing January at this time. Uh, does it affect the culture? Are people resentful of those working from home ted your thoughts uh, i i don't think so but i i think the the bigger question is going to be when the as you mentioned maybe january when the if you will return to work or return back to the workplace because you're still working what's going to happen because a lot of businesses are now looking at okay for example if you scott are working from your home can you continue to do that going forward? Is it cheaper yeah. for the company to have you work here or uh, have you work from home? What do you want to do? Do you want to work here? Do you want to work? So there's a whole bunch of things. But what I can tell you is, you know, there's just a skeleton staff of us here. And we've all gotten to, you know, know each other really well over the last 18, 19 and, months. And, you because know, it's I, been... I, rem- I remember walking in. I've been in twice yep. since all of this to get equipment. You know, And yep. it's kind of like, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? You're, you're not clear to get in here, are you? What are you doing? <laughs> you're not supposed to be in here. Uh, what are your thoughts, Diana? Yeah, I, I kind of agree there with Ted. I mean, um, I personally, when it started, I was like, oh, yeah, it would be cool to work at home because I was like, I don't know if I want to be outside, you know, with this new coronavirus, you know, when things all started. But after things started getting, you know, more the norm for us, I realized that maybe going into work um, actually kept me a little bit sane. You know, you're going into work to to. have a routine still you're you're seeing people even if you're only driving 15 minutes you're technically getting in your car going out doing the motions you know the other issue here is for somebody like myself who um you know much as i'm not used to talking i miss seeing people i miss going to the boss and you know saying you know knocking on his door or whatever or going to somebody else and just like socializing i miss that because it's the same group of people and i know (laughs) speaking for my boss and i shouldn't i know he's really tired of zoom meetings and conference calls because he can't get in the building and i'm i know there's a lot of like the sales team uh they are out and about and that's the way they do i mean they you know start off their day maybe in the office and then they go out on calls or what have you but for other people people um we really miss seeing them yeah 
It's amazing because, um, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages to both. And, you know, I have been blessed to be able to do it here and keep employed, as we all have during this. Um, but, you know, as you mentioned, with the human contact going out, I mean, you literally feel like you're a hermit. And, and that's all you do is you go to work, you go into your little room, you do your thing. I was watching a uh, one of the Sunday morning shows, and they did a piece on, you know, even them affect how it affects them. And, and there's this prominent CBS reporter who you'd recognize, and she's joking around on a Twitter thing and says, here, I'll show you my studio. She goes to her hall closet, and she literally opens opens the hall closet and pushes all the coats to one side mm-hmm. and the closet is quite deep she then goes inside and in the closet she pulls the coats back closes the door and that's where her laptop and microphone is i was gonna say and, was it narnia did she find narnia in there i i don't <laughs> but you that's know what i was waiting it, for it's like the other day, you know, you get the call from the engineer, and the next thing you know, I'm sitting and I've got uh, mattress sheets all around me to try to deaden the sound. And, to try to, and that's, yeah. you know, it, yeah, you know, what do you do? Uh, it's going to be fascinating coming out of this and seeing how and what the new normal is, because and, what and, is a hybrid situation? And when they come back, do they have to get used to some sort of... You know, behavior, hey, don't get too close. We've been double vaccinated, but hey, you know, so, or when they come back, is it, you know, again, back to finger quote, normal. So that whole thing of them coming in this building after 18 to 20 months may be a little different as well. (laughs) There's going to be some new protocol. We're like the summer school kids. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, really. Eh? How's that? All right, let's get to the poll question of the day. Uh, Ten encampments, should they be removed? 65% saying on the poll question of the day that they should. I think this problem has been going along, Ted, going on, Ted, for as long as I can remember. It all comes back to where do they go once we remove the encampments. But your thoughts? That's the question is where do they go? Um, yeah. And I know when we heard the clip on, uh, we played it on CHML News yesterday, Ken Mann got that montage from people who live near, uh, you know, encampments and they're saying, you know, people are, you know, urinating on their lawns and yeah. other things like that. I understand their concern, like I really do. Um, I, do you really, not you, but do we really want a shot of what happened one time in Toronto? I believe they came in with bulldozers and they, you know, just basically cleared people out. And that that caused almost a riot. I understand what the people are saying. It's kind of a fine line. and But as you say, the big question that has not been answered yet is... You take them out of the parks, where do they go? Diana? Yeah, obviously I'm stating the obvious here, but it's just so sad that it's come to this, you know. I mean, they obviously have nowhere else to go because uh, housing is, affordable housing is just you know, virtually non-existent for some people nowadays. And uh, so that's that's really sad. But then again, like as Ted was saying, as much as it, you know, is is really not good for the people that are living in that area that, you know, that have a home, um, you know, for their property yeah. and stuff. Mm-hmm. But but like, where are they going to, like, I just, it's just, it's it's so, it's such a gray topic. You know, there's no black and white answer for what, what should happen, I don't think. It's yeah, going to be, no solution. there's going to be parties that are going to be hurt no matter what, so... Will, you want to weigh in on this one? Yeah, uh, it just strikes me that like so many other things throughout the pandemic, this is another case where we're seeing uh, something that we've maybe been dragging our feet on in society for a long time, now getting highlighted by a crunch time scenario. Because as Ted says, we, we don't have a system that is up to par with the needs of 2021. Uh, we have an okay system. There are shelters that really help, but there's still more that's needed, more space that's needed, and other avenues for these people that we just don't have right now. So, And like you said, I mean, the, the pandemic has just heightened this the way it has so many other things in life. All right, uh, lots to chat about with Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Uh, the House of Commons says that as of November 22nd, everybody entering has to be fully vaccinated. We're going to talk about that and, of course, the Doug Ford fallout. Michael is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you are, too. So your thoughts on uh, the House of Commons uh, being fully vaccinated as of November 22nd, and obviously there's some opposition from the Conservatives. Yeah, well, there's two points to that. Um, The full vaccination, I think we assumed, was going to happen. The key was going to be, and it still is a key, because it could actually be brought up in some sort of a legal matter, the, you know, directly the rules and regulations governing the House of Commons or the Canadian Parliament 
obviously don't cover anything like a pandemic or a health pandemic. There are some sections or subsections that deal with the health of ministers and their safety and well-being, but nothing specifically obviously covers anything like this. You know, even in the days of the Spanish flu in 1918, they didn't discuss this matter. So I'm not surprised it went through. I think you may see a number of MPs complain to some degree, which may mean that they actually go back to a virtual parliament or a part virtual parliament and part physical parliament where people are physically in and some people are just over Zoom. But we'll see what happens. For the Conservatives, the, the, the matter is unfortunately a little bit of a balancing act. Aaron O'Toole and most Conservatives in general believe that people should be vaccinated. He is fully vaccinated. Most of his caucus is fully vaccinated. And the Conservative Party in Canada, even during the election, obviously supports them. But there are obviously some Conservative MPs who are either have one dose of one of the COVID-19 vaccines or none. And one of the problems that we have is in the conservative movement, we actually believe in the, the basic principles of intellectual freedom, freedom of thought, freedom of speech, freedom of discourse, and basically people being free to think about certain things that may not necessarily flow or jive properly with the majority of society. So while I can certainly understand while some conservative MPs are obviously going to be very frustrated by this, based on their own position, and some of them are going to be kind of furious with the conservative leader if they're not vaccinated. The problem really is that if you look at not only the conservative party, but also the conservative party membership, everybody is across the board when it comes to that issue. Now, look, I'm fully vaccinated. Most conservatives are fully vaccinated. I think what they're doing is wrong, in other words, the opponents of it. But at the same time, we live in a free society. We live in a democracy. And if that is the case, it's kind of hard to force the House of Commons to do something like this. It's also hard for a political leader to force his caucus to do this, especially if the tradition of Canadian conservatism is not to basically follow along in that pattern. But in the end, I think what will happen is Aaron O'Toole will basically just say, look, this is what the House of Commons has decided. I may not necessarily agree with it, but in the end, the Conservative Party, like all other parties, has to go along with it. And then we'll see what happens. At the end of the day, Michael, is this any different than going into a restaurant or going into a gym or doing anything nowadays? That's the whole debate around vaccine certificates and such. I mean, if you can't go into a restaurant without being fully vaccinated, why is this any different? Well, look, I mean, and I talked about this with you and with others. The amusing thing is if you actually look at some examples of some gyms, both in Ontario and B.C., they're actually not letting fully vaccinated people in. They're only letting people in who are unvaccinated. But at the end of the day, Michael, at the end of the day, certainly in Canada, the vast majority of those that are eligibly vaccinated, our numbers are up into the high 80% now. Is there any sense in even debating this? Even, you know, I mean, it's still, whether you whether you believe in it or you're not, it's still the majority of the people who who, who believe in this. And and the numbers are astronomical. What's, what's the win by catering to the other 10% or 15%? Well, while some people are obviously looking at it as sort of an issue of the tyranny of the minority, if you wish, um, it's not really a win-lose situation. It's basically just the way Canadian conservatives and conservative, conservatism looks at issues such as I said, free speech, free thought, freedom yeah. in general. And for that reason, it makes it difficult. So the fact that the majority of us, including I assume you, I, and others, and many of the listeners are doing that, it's fine. The problem is that not everyone necessarily thinks that way, which means that you either have to make accommodations, which, as I said, could be doing Zoom conferencing again, or to create some sort of a balancing act where you have some members in, some members out. Again, I don't know how many members of the Conservative Party are unvaccinated or only have one dose. I have absolutely no idea. I I would imagine that only Aaron O'Toole and a few others would know that. But regardless of the fact, is it, um, is it a mugs game to fight it? Not necessarily. I think it has to be fought on principle. And even if I think that they're, they're wrong, completely wrong in what they're doing, yeah. the Conservative Party also agree, you know, doesn't believe that people should all think the same way, that we all have to be aligned in that manner, and we allow freedom of thought. And for that reason, I can understand where this is a difficult issue. I completely agree with that. All right, let's talk about the Doug Ford and the comments that were made during the Q&A uh, sure. on immigration and such. Um, yeah. I don't know. Uh, I, I think this has already been talked about too much. Uh, at the end of the day, I don't find it offensive in what he said. Do you, no. Does this have legs? No, it doesn't have legs. It only has legs with people who 
people who just like Doug Ford. And yeah, there's a lot of them. No one's questioning that. But any provincial premier or a federal leader, such as the prime minister of this country, there can be obviously a lot of people opposed to him or his ideas. With the case of Doug Ford, I think it's very simple. If you really parse through the message, we don't have an enormous amount of time, most of his message was actually crafted in a positive manner, saying that we believe in immigration, we allow immigration, we want, Im- we want new immigrants or new Canadians to work hard in this country. These are all things that all Canadians of all political stripes believe in. It doesn't have to just be in Ontario. The problem is when he brought in the issue of, you know, we don't want people on the dole, so to speak. Yeah. And, you know, that's where it went wrong. So I really don't think there's anything wrong with this statement. I really don't at all. Could it have been crafted better? A hundred percent. I completely agree with that. Not because I'm a professional writer, but because he left himself open to an attack for that reason. But should Doug Ford apologize for this statement? Absolutely not, because by and large, what he is saying is we believe in immigration. We want new Canadians. We're happy to have them in Ontario. We want them to continue to develop, build, rebuild the economy. But at the same time, we don't want them to come in and just assume that social services are going to protect them morning, noon and night. No Canadian would believe that. And quite frankly, no Ontarian would either. So I really find the whole thing to be nonsense. From start it, to does, it does seem very political. Uh, Michael Tobe with us, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. You too. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. All right, uh, news today about Canada's inflation rate. It has hit its highest level since 2003 and is now sitting at uh, 4.4%. The majority of that, the real culprit, is uh, fuel, a 32% increase uh, year over year, which uh, obviously is contributing to inflation. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, Doing very well, thanks, Scott. Ian, we hear people, experts, uh, say that this is temporary, and we always know things are temporary until they become the norm. Is this about supply chain issues and so on and so forth? Is that why we are, uh, why we are uh, where we are? Or has the traditional low interest rates, which we've been seeing for uh, quite a while now, is, is it the end of an era here? Um, it's a little bit of, of all of that. Um, I mean, mostly uh, it, the supply chain interruptions. So let me just go back for a moment um, because I want to put a larger frame around this. As you, we all know, we went through four lockdowns. And I think there was strong support, and I'm not challenging the lockdown. Mm-hmm. I understand why we did it. However, I would state uh, and put out there that I thought that we um, went um, very quickly into as universal a lockdown as possible. There were some essential industries exempted, of course, without uh, researching and understanding the full costs of the lockdown. My sense at the time, and I'm talking March to 20 and last summer, uh, last spring and summer and fall, there was a sense that you know, look, if we didn't do the lockdown, the costs were unbelievable. And if we do a lockdown, there's almost no costs or very little. And the costs are now turning out uh, to be much higher. Not only the obvious costs that, you know, people lost their jobs and we had to do these huge uh, um, uh, income support programs that cost billions and billions and doubled the national debt, but people, all kinds of people with serious health problems were getting denied treatment for cancer and heart because they had to keep the hospitals free. And now we're seeing a further uh, cost of the lockdowns, plural, because it massively disrupted the supply chains. I'm not just blaming Canada. I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just saying yeah. there's consequences. And so it's disrupted the supply chains not only in Canada, but in the States and around the world. And that, in turn, is driving the inflation because, you know, <laughs> Economics 101 or just Reality 101 tells you that when there's a shortage of something, it doesn't matter what it is shortage of anything, the price goes up, whether it's toilet paper, whether it's two-by-fours, whether it's it, it, whatever. Uh, that's what people do. They bid up the price. And so right now, because of these shortages, the, um, the, the inflation's going up. But I do want to point out, Scott, one more and that's point. why And that's why they say it's temporary, because of the supply chain issues. Is that accurate? Well, they are saying it's temporary. There's no question. The Governor of the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve... But here is the kicker, I think. 
and I'm going to put to you and your listeners, the kicker is this. The supply chain shortages are causing inflation. We know that. Highest rate you know, in, uh, in many years, meets up 10%. And so what's happening is uh, people are going to start demanding wage increases. That's pretty clear, I think. But more importantly, the income support that they had to bring out across the board um, has what it has done uh, because it uh, unilaterally amended the unemployment insurance rules that said, look, you only get 65 70% of your income that you mm-hmm. lost, and you must be looking for a job, and you must take one the moment it's offered, if it's in your wheelhouse. We threw all those windows, rules out the window. And so what's happened is now there's, there's wide reporting of a lot of people not wanting to go back to work. Yeah. And that's exacerbating, not creating, but it's, I believe it's exacerbating the inflation. And it's going to take higher wages to bring people back into the workforce, which will then embed, the inflation will become embedded, and yeah. then that so-called temporary inflation could become embedded and permanent. Uh, many have said we've talked about not only supply shortages but labor shortages. Uh, others, uh, uh, opposition will say, uh, if you want people coming back, you have to raise uh, wages. Uh, otherwise, people will stay home. Uh, is that the answer here? Is that what has to happen? And, and you know, eventually that will create inflation, obviously. But is that what we're going to see? Are we going to see? Uh, things like minimum wages and those lower-paying uh, jobs in see increases as a result of this. Um, I'm going to answer your question uh, conditionally. Right now, Christy Freeland, the Minister of Finance, is having uh, intense discussions with many stakeholders over the, are we going to extend the support? Uh, some, some business lobby groups are pushing very hard, as are some unions. And... And, and I can understand why people say, well, why would you oppose, be opposed to that? But let's remember that before there was a CERB or a CURS or a Q or whatever all these alphabet soup programs are called, we've had an income support program for 80 years or more. It's called the Unemployment Insurance Act, and it's been supported by huge numbers of Canadians since it was passed in 1935, and it is the classic income support program. The government of Canada, Mr. Trudeau, did not abolish the Unemployment Insurance Act. It's still there. And so my point being, to answer your question, Scott, is, well, they're talking about continuing putting out over $100 billion, yet you look at the numbers, and the stats can shows that all the jobs have been recovered since the pandemic. We're back to pre-pandemic levels of employment. The economy is growing at 5 or 6% a year. And so, you know, to use the great line by the rock group Supertramp, Crisis? What crisis? Where's the crisis? And yet we're pumping out huge amounts, which are distorting the labor markets and, and, and worsening the, the inflation. Yes, people say we can in, in, increase the wages, but let's be very clear. Wages are about 70-75% of just about every business in Canada, most businesses. So if you do in, increase the wages significantly, there will be inflation. And that, in turn, will trigger interest rate increases by the Bank of Canada. If that's where we want to go, that's fine. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about Canada's inflation rate at its highest level in about 18 years, sitting at 4.4%. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. All right. Uh, over the course of this global pandemic, and even before that, we talked about a thriving uh, craft brewery industry. And then all of a sudden, a global pandemic, it changes a lot of things. Uh, and what it has done is it's allowed uh, a lot of these operators to... Uh, well, due to the loosening of some regulations in various provinces, including Ontario, it now allows uh, more access to uh, local brewers and such as a result of uh, changes that were made to help during the COVID pandemic. Let's bring in Matt Johnson, CEO of Collective Arts Brewing in Hamilton, and he is with us now. Matt, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm, I'm great. Thanks for having me on today. So, Matt, if, if someone's never been, tell everybody about Collective Arts Brewing, what it's all about. At Collective Arts, we're, we're really about in, inspiring through creativity. So we um, support emerging artists from all around the world. And uh, so, you know, for us, it's really creativity inside and out. From the beverages we make, we make craft beer, 
spirits, you know, gin, uh, uh, cocktails. Uh, we even do coffee, but it's really, you know, from the products we make to then the artists that we feature and champion, we, you know, we, we just believe that a creative world is a better world. So that's really what we're all about. How did you get the idea to blend these two worlds together? Uh, well, really, like creativity inspires us, and so when when if you're, if you're gonna if you're gonna start a company or or get up every day and go to work, you you, you really want to be inspired. And so for for us and everyone that's joined us is really inspired by you know the amazing works of, of creatives. I'm uh, you know I'm I'm uh, you know struggling uh, you know artist or musician myself. I, I would love to be better at all those things, but instead I think my creative talent is helping to champion champion those that, that inspire inspire me obviously a pandemic changes the world for everybody how has it changed uh local brewing and craft brewing and such we've certainly seen the province uh in various provinces open up regulation and such and allow you to get your product to more people how effective has that been during the pandemic yes <laughs> I would say, you know, for most people, the, the pandemic has been a roller coaster, uh, and it definitely has been that way for, you know, for the you know, craft brewing industry. Um, you know, some of the highlights for us would be uh, that uh, opening up uh, e-commerce, w- which was something that was relatively new to us, but wasn't common for people to uh, order for beer delivered to home. That's become a much bigger thing for us. And, uh, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, you know, we were, you know, I was delivering beer and we all were, and it was great. We are the first person someone may have seen in a, uh, you know, real person. Someone mm. had seen it. And so it allowed us to really get closer to, you know, directly to um, our, our drinkers, which, which is, um, you know, uh, really uh, inspiring for us. Um, and then, you know, like the, the, the addition of, um, uh, you know, the farmer's markets where we can sell directly there, uh, or even uh, allowing bars and restaurants to sell directly was was huge for a lot of bars and restaurants in order to, you mm. know, uh, survive and thrive through the pandemic. And and a lot of them have been great to support, uh, you know, local craft brewers. What do craft brewers need moving forward? And and many I've asked many if they think these cool. these new uh, uh, these new provisions will last. And here's hoping that they do. That you're allowed to sell in the farmers markets and all this other stuff keeps continuing post pandemic. But w- w- what is the biggest challenge for a craft brewer right now? Well, uh, um, that's that's a good question. It's uh, you know we make a very wide portfolio of products. Um, it, it's hard, you know, hard to make those available for, for sale. You know, we have a fairly regulated uh, marketplace. So with a lot of beer being sold through the, you know, product being sold through the beer store, which is really hard to feature craft brewers just based on how the stores are built and how you have to pay for listing. So, you know, it'd be great to see some changes there. And, um, you know, I, I, but I, I think all these changes are, are great and they give us just more opportunities uh, for whether you're, you're a brand new craft brewer starting up or whether you're established one to to feature your, your range of products. Do you think this is industry is going to continue to grow or has it hit its saturation point yet? That's a good question. I, it is still continuing to grow, but it will continue to need more support from, uh, you know, the LCBO to, and, and, the, and the grocers to continue carving out more space for local and, and, and really there, there's no, you know, di- no downside for that. You know, we are the ones who uh, create the jobs and uh, in, in not just in, you know, one city, but in every small town and city and rural area across the province. And, you know, often, you know, we make cider, we use all local ingredients. So, uh, you know, we do a lot for the economy. And so the more the different retailers, um, again, whether that is the LCBO, the beer store, or the grocers, or now the bars and restaurants, the more they can feature local, the more they're actually giving back and supporting their local community. And so, you know, I, I think that, um, uh, you know, continuing to recognize, you know, just the value that we, we bring through jobs, is, is especially during the pandemic, is really important. Matt Johnson with us, CEO of Collective Arts Brewing in Hamilton. Ontario-based brewers are now able to apply to have their uh, beers distributed at farmers markets as we still, uh, as we start to see protocol uh, loosen post-pandemic or hopefully continue to stay uh, loosened in a post-pandemic world. Matt, thanks for the time. Good luck moving forward. Be well. Yeah, thanks.
Have a great day. If you're all about drama and gossip, well, this isn't for you. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Uh, it is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, Will on the board, Ted and Diana in the newsroom. And, of course, I, I went down and got, grabbed my cowbell because we were playing Don't, Don't Fear the Reaper, and it's a cowbell song, all that stuff. And then I thought, well, you know, this is my second cowbell because the first one, the, the thing flew out of it. Um, and then I said, this is like beautifully made in Canada. It's Canadian. It's like heavy duty. And then I realized, no, it's not. It's made in China. And it also says this is not a toy or intended for anyone under 14 years of age because it's a choking hazard. How can it be a choking hazard? It's a cowbell. It's the size of my forearm. But what's the choking hazard? That little ball that flies out due to poor manufacturing. So, yeah, that's the choking hazard, the bell, the little ball that flies out of it. It also says you must be 21 years old to consume alcoholic beverages. Always drink responsibly. What does that have to do with the cowbell? Other than it says on it, ring for beer. But I guess when you have that sort of uh, slogan on it, you have to put the disclaimer in. All right, I digress. Uh, let's bring in Charles Burton and, and uh, get serious about this conversation. Senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Reason we want to talk to Charles today, uh, the Olympic torch has been lit for the 2022 Beijing Games. You may have seen this. Uh, the whole ceremony takes place in Greece the way it always does. And, you know, many talked weeks ago, months ago, that maybe we shouldn't even go. And then very quietly... Poof, the torch is lit, and off we go to the Beijing Games. Uh, Charles is with us now. Charles, your thoughts on uh, where we are? And again, it wasn't that long ago you and I were talking about whether this was a good idea or not, but simply it just seems to have fallen off the the agenda here, and uh, the Games are a go. Yeah, I mean, they're a go. Of course, uh, whether there'll be boycotts by countries like the United States um, over China's uh, policies of genocide against the uh, Turkic Muslims and other things, but particularly the genocide, uh, remains to be seen. I, I think that a lot of people are comparing this to the 1936 um, Berlin Games, where you know the games were used to glorify and legitimize the uh, Nazi leadership of, of uh, Adolf Hitler, and we know how that ended up. So it is it is troubling. Um, you know, any athletes that go there will inevitably have to show respect for a regime that's engaged in activities that are, you know, crimes against humanity, and that is troubling. In other words, the idea that we can have an Olympics without any political content is just not going to uh, be something that the Chinese government will let happen. The only reason they're holding the Olympics in China is because they expect to benefit from it but in terms of uh, affirmation of the uh, Chinese Communist Party regime there. So, you know, it, it's a troubling thing. I I still wish that we, uh, that the Western world had got it together to organize competitions outside of China so that the athletes would have an opportunity to, to demonstrate their uh, their um, sports skills, but evidently that is not happening. There doesn't seem to be any government that has the courage to to say, I don't think we ought to be sending our people to China, and uh, the games are a go, but, you know, there, there will be boycotts, and that then debases the purpose of the Olympics, which is to establish who's the best in the world at, at uh, one sport or another. So if there were going to be boycotts, Charles, would we not have heard of the uh, of them already, or is this something you do at the last minute? I think it would probably occur um, because of public outrage. Um, you know, we're, we're still a bit off from the Olympics, mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, this may occur shortly before before the Olympics. I'm, I'm pretty sure that the U.S. will not be sending a team, and I think there are a number really? of other countries in you know, in Eastern Europe and other places, uh, uh, even even uh, Japan, uh, who who might decide that they just can't they just can't be involved in this. I mean, the Philippines has has been. Did we lose Charles? Oh, 
I think I think we've lost Charles. Uh, oh well, uh, are you gonna try to get him back? We'll try to get him back. Uh, you know, I, I, I think it's fascinating that this all happened, and again, there's relatively uh, little chatter about it. Yet a few months ago, uh, with the two Michaels and all the other uh, commotion that was going on, uh, there was lots of chatter whether, uh, in fact, uh, people should or country should boycott uh, the 2022 Beijing Games. Many have said that if you do that, then the retaliation uh, will be hell. But so what does that mean? You scare you scare people into into participating uh, in games. It just doesn't seem to make sense. Charles Burton is back with a senior fellow for the Center of Advancing Can- uh, Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Charles, do you really think that we may see the U.S. pull out of these games? I, well, I mean, the precedent is there with regard to the uh, to when um, Russia invaded Afghanistan. They boycotted the those Moscow games, um, I, I just can't imagine the political climate in the United States being as it is that the U.S. would simply, um, you know, say, well, it will just go with the international nature of the Olympics and and uh, and allow our people to go there. And, of course, there's also the, the notion that if any athlete engaged in any kind of political pro, pro uh, protest that they they could be subject to brutal Chinese justice so you know it constrains people's freedom to to speak out against um, concerns over the genocide and I think that um, we don't want to put our athletes in a position where where they're having to to you know abide by the norms of the Chinese Communist Party while they're in China you know just it just seems uh, going against the democratic spirit of of um, of the way you know the way the West mm. functions, which allows people to to speak their minds out if they if they want to, and so you know whether the games are held in Beijing or Iran or or North Korea, you know you know you're going to be subject to inevitably political repression that cannot be avoided, despite the fact that it's Olympics, you're still holding them in those countries where where they have uh, political systems that that don't allow for for freedom of expression and rule of law. Charles Burton has been with us, senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonald laurier Institute. The Olympic torch has been lit for the 2022 Beijing Games. Will there be boycotts? Charles, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Good to speak with you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. It is 626. That is a wrap for the show. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Will and Ted and Lisa, sorry, and Diana for particip- uh, participating today. As always, right here on CHML's Hamilton Today, we leave it to you, a good listener, to have the last word, as we have done with Steve on Facebook's name change. I'd like to see the name of uh, Facebook changed to Farsebook. Did he say fart?